You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, I'm Harriet Vickers, and thanks for joining us for this week's BMJ podcast. The link between smoking and mortality is undisputed, so what if society did manage to eliminate this dangerous habit? Duncan finds out what the major health risks would be for women and how these are affected by class. So I think if um, you were to get rid of smoking altogether, you know, in every corner of society, then that would have uh, a big effect in reducing health inequalities. But firstly, BMJ's web editor David Payne talks to editor Fiona Godley on what came to pass at the BMA annual representatives meeting this week. This week, the British Medical Association has decamped to Cardiff for its four-day annual representative meeting. The meeting helped set the association's agenda for the coming year and uh, various motions are debated. With me, I have Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, who was in Cardiff for some of this week's proceedings. Hello, Fiona. Hi. Now, you were there for, for much of, the, uh, t- of this week's proceedings. You've been to quite a few of these over the years, Fiona. Could you explain what the mood was like this year? Well, there are some big issues for the BMA and for doctors in general within the UK and the NHS at the moment. Obviously, with the uh, NHS reforms that the government is wanting to uh, bring about and the recent Futures Forum uh, Future Forum uh, panel that has come up with an attempt to change those reforms in ways that will make them more palatable. So it's a very, very um, hot topic for obvious reasons, a terrific passion for the NHS amongst BMA representatives, a sense that the NHS is at a, a real turning point and uh, that that these reforms represent, as some people said, the first, the final steps towards privatisation of the NHS. So a real strong sense of passion for wanting to save the NHS. Um, and, and obviously others at the, at the meeting who have uh, a less catastrophic view of what the reforms mean for the NHS and, and even have a, a sense of wanting to see a greater plurality of providers um, of healthcare. So both sides represented, but but I think overwhelmingly the view was that the BMA needs to stand up for the NHS and and yes. do as much as possible to prevent these reforms from damaging it. Yes, and and there was a motion, I believe, wasn't there, about um you know whether the BMA should support the bill being scrapped, um and, and that was defeated, wasn't it? Well, um, there were two motions, and and they may seem to have come to conflicting. Uh, votes on this. The first motion was a general one about the reforms with, with a number of points asking the BMA um, and Hamish Meldon in particular, the chairman, to go to the government and um, be very critical of the reforms and also to call for withdrawal of the bill. And that was passed in, in, in full, that, that whole motion. But there was another motion which asked the um, BMA to call for the bill to be opposed in its entirety. And although that sounds like calling for the bill to be withdrawn, what that really means is that it would mean that the BMA would have to step away from any negotiations with the government and mm. stop any engagement. And Hamish Meldon, chairman of the of the BMA council, really made a very heartfelt plea to the uh, representatives not to um, ask him to oppose the bill in its entirety because he said it would marginalise the BMA and um, prevent them from having any voice in future discussions with the government. And his point was that actually in the last few months... The BMA and others, including the, the coalition, uh, the Liberal Democrats um, and, and other voices, have really put pressure on the government, which led to the Future Forum panel being asked to look for other alternatives and to make changes to the reforms, the yes. listening exercise. So I think, I think in the end, the decision was the right one for the BMA because engagement seems to be working. Yes. Now, you co-authored an editorial this week of the BMJ um, calling for the bill to be killed, um, and it's a subject of our print cover this week. Was that mentioned at all during the course of the conference? Did people sort of comment on the proposals that you and your co-authors, Tony Delamoth and Edward Davis, uh, uh, 
called for? There was quite a lot of comment about the editorial, uh, to my mind, largely supportive. I think people felt that, um, that that our suggestion that the bill should be buried in an unmarked grave because it's, um, A, was never necessary uh, to do the things that many of the things that the government wanted to do and B, was now a complete mess and uh, really was going to add enormous layers of bureaucracy and cost, mm. uh, which are the things that purportedly the government wanted to reduce. So we've said the bill should be buried and we've got a nice powerful front cover making that point. Um, I think, as I say, that the, the people with the job of negotiating on behalf of the BMA found the idea of the BMJ speaking out like this rather uncomfortable. And um, But but that's fine. That That's the nature of the relationship between the BMJ and BMA. Absolutely. And I think it's a very healthy one. Yes. And, uh, and if you would like to have your say on that, there is actually a poll on BMJ.com, which is running until Tuesday of next week, um, which, which asks that very question. I think the last time I looked at it, it had um, a few dozen votes and uh, the, the sentiment seemed to be that the, the bill should be scrapped. Talking of bureaucracy, Fiona, um, there was a, a committee meeting of the, um, the Parliamentary Committee looking at amendments to the Health and Social Care Bill yesterday where the point was made that actually the number of statutory organisations will leap threefold from um, 163 to 521. So um, it doesn't look like there is going to be this cut in bureaucracy that uh, was obviously hoped for when the bill first came out. No, I think absolutely the reverse. And, and the recommendations from the Future Forum um, do seem to have added many layers of extra scrutiny on GP consortia uh, decision making um, mm. and and as as we say in the editorial taken with the forum's other recommendations this would have left the NHS with a proportion of bureaucrats similar to that in the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the eve of the First World War and about as flat-footed so I think there, there is a, a sense of, of dismay yes. at the prospect of this level of bureaucracy which is going to hamper yes. uh, innovation and progress. Right, I was quite intrigued to see that um, this monster analogy came up during the course of the conference as well which made me reminded me of the January cover we did where we um, we first covered the bill and, and used an image of Frankenstein um, to to illustrate uh, this. Uh, yes, this, uh, Dr. Lansley's monster. Yes. yes, it has come up quite a lot now. I think people find it a, a, a useful and rather evocative image. Right. Obviously, other things got discussed during the course of the week, Fiona. What else caught your eye? You probably were out and about, but um, what, what other debates actually sort of caught your eye? Um, well, we've we had some debates on the uh, on medical ethics uh, debate whether the BMA should call for the the limit on legal abortion to be brought down to twenty two weeks, uh, and it was a brief debate and was defeated. And the view was that the current uh, limit is is uh, fine and it doesn't need to be changed. Uh, another debate uh, asking for the BMA to maintain its current stance on assisted dying, which is against assisted dying, yes. uh, was deferred. So I don't know the outcome of that, but right. I expect that that will be passed. I don't yes. see any reason why the BMA at the moment is likely to change its stance on that. Yes, and I believe we got mentioned uh, in, the, uh, in the in the pre-run to that debate, did we? Yes, the BMJ? the BMJ was asked in the motion to present a rather more balanced view of the uh, issues around assisted dying. Uh, I, th I think we have, in the BMJ over the past few years, given both sides of the debate. We've had a head-to-head -head and we've had a personal view from Brian Livesey, amongst other things, putting the case against a physician assist assistance in dying. Um, but I would probably say that overwhelmingly uh, there has been a tendency to support um, a, a more open debate about assisted dying and we've had a lot of coverage from Anne McPherson who as you yes. know recently died and who was a great advocate for assisted dying and also from Raymond Tallis who's written very I think eloquently on assisted dying. So I think it's appropriate that the BMJ uh, 
have some degree of campaigning on this issue. And I think balance isn't always what the BMJ is about. Obviously, we hope to get our facts right and um, we hope to provide an evidence-based and um, well-argued position. So as well as a range of voices, I think campaigning on this issue seems to me to be appropriate. Okay, thank you, Fiona. Well, um, there's lots of coverage about the BMA annual representative meeting on bmj.com and quite a few stories there at the moment. There'll be more being posted during the course of the week. So do please go to bmj.com and uh, read them and uh, have your say if if you want to. Um, Thank you for joining us today, Fiona. Thank you, David. And links to all the articles David and Fiona mentioned are on the podcast page. Next up, Duncan on a world without smoking. I'm joined on the phone now by Lawrence Grewer, who's Director of Public Health Science at NHS Health Scotland. He and his colleagues have written a paper published in the BMJ this week uh, called Cause-Specific Mortality, Social Position and Obesity Amongst Women Who Have Never Smoked. It's a 28-year cohort study. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about it, Lawrence. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, this is part of a large group of studies, cohort studies, that have been based in Glasgow. Could you tell us a little bit about the background to it? Yeah, these studies, which are called the mid-span studies, were started in the 1960s by an epidemiologist called Victor Hawthorne. This particular uh, cohort was uh, started in 1972, and uh, overall he recruited over 15,000 uh, people to the study. It included a lot of women, in fact, um, over 8,000 women. Uh, and as far as we know, it's the only study, a cohort study in the UK from that period that uh, has a large number of women. Okay. So it's providing some really uh, very um, unique and, and interesting information. And we've seen some of the other studies before in the BMJ, but specifically, you were looking at women who have never smoked. What prompted you to to look at that? The reason we did this was that we did an earlier study which showed that the women who never smoked were by far the healthiest, had the the best survival um, of the whole population. Mm -hmm. The never smoking women who were in the lowest occupational class, at the end of 28 years, 56% of them were still alive. Whereas for the, the women who smoked in the highest occupational class, there were only 41% still alive. So we wanted to find out a bit more about why that was. Your methods and the data that you've been talking about are in your paper, and that's freely available for everyone online. Could you just summarise for us what you you found? Yeah, we we found that among these women, um, lower social position, which we use occupational class to look at, was linked with, with higher mortality rates from cardiovascular disease, but it wasn't for cancer. We, we saw no significant link. Obesity was surprisingly prevalent um, in this group of women as a whole, more prevalent than among the smokers, and it was especially so among the women in the lower social positions where um, it was linked with much higher mortality rates. Uh, but I suppose the most positive message to come out of this is that um, among the women who uh, didn't smoke and who weren't obese, uh, they had the lowest mortality rates of all, regardless of whether they were in a high or a low op- occupational class. 
I mean, it's an interesting picture you're painting there about the kind of distortion that that smoking creates in the, the health of the country, well, in the health of women in Glasgow. There's an editorial that runs alongside your article, and in there uh, the editorialist asks, what would happen to health inequalities if smoking were eliminated totally? What do you think the world like that would look like? Well, the first thing to say is that... Um the way smoking has actually, you know, declined, you know, over the last 40 years or so, in itself has contributed a lot to um, this apparent uh, increase in uh, health inequalities because uh, so many more of people in um, higher occupational groups um, and higher income groups have stopped smoking. Mm-hmm. So I think if um, you were to get rid of smoking altogether, you know, in every corner of society, then that would have uh, a big effect in reducing health inequalities. But of course, they wouldn't uh, eliminate it altogether. Uh, and in fact, the social gradient for um, alcohol-related harm in the west of Scotland is, is steeper than the smoking gradient is. Uh, we've also seen in the last 30 years the misuse of other drugs uh, you know, like heroin in particular, mm. but also benzodiazepines. And then we've got this, this issue of, of obesity. <clears throat> and they, they're the pictures quite complex because, uh, as we've shown in our paper, obesity, and especially severe obesity, is more common among women in uh, lower occupational groups. But that's not the case among men. Mm-hmm. And you know, West of Scotland has got a certain notoriety for <laughs> the poor diet there. Uh, and so it's not just, you know, overweight that's an issue. It's eating, you know, a diet that's uh, high in, in saturated fats and salt uh, and high in sugar, which you know, causes other problems apart from, from obesity. And there's quite a lot of social patterning there as well. So all these factors, regrettably, would still be around. Now, obviously, there have been moves against smoking, as you say, that's going down. We're we're moving to packs that might not have any branding on it, getting rid of uh, displays behind uh, shop counters, all in an attempt to try and cut down on the rates of smoking. Say uh, that did happen, what do you think would be the next, or should be the next big push for public health? It obviously depends on your national context. And it may vary from country to to country. Mm-hmm, absolutely, we've certainly reached the conclusion in in Scotland that there are uh, probably two or three main priorities. Uh, one, one is the impact of alcohol. That is related to a trend, um, you know, over the last thirty years for increasing alcohol consumption, uh, just at the time when. smoking rates have been going in the opposite direction. Yes. We find uh, across the UK, but I think, again, there's some aspects that are perhaps more severe in Scotland Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, a lot of kids suffer um, extreme, you know, disadvantage, uh, you know, almost from conception. If a mother smokes during pregnancy, that can have big impacts on the fetal development. You know, kids are born and subjected to secondhand smoke. They're not breastfed, may not get the bonding and stimulation ideal. Um, before the age of two, 
you know, a lot of these kids are really falling behind their better off counterparts. Mm -hmm. So focus on trying to reverse some of these damaging aspects of childhood, you know, I think in the long term would make a big difference to health overall. You've talked there about how some of these problems are, they're more acute in Scotland and particularly perhaps in the west of Scotland. How applicable do you think they are beyond this context? Colleagues of mine have been doing studies comparing the health experience of people in the west of Scotland with that of people living in Liverpool and Manchester Mm -hmm. and finding a lot of similarities. And we've also been looking at similar post-industrial areas in other parts of Europe. And you can see you know, quite a lot of similarities. There have been studies fairly recently reported you know, based on the civil servants in Whitehall yes. uh, showing that there are very similar relationships between smoking, diet, physical activity with poor health, health outcomes. So you know, I don't think there's any way in which you could say that people in the west of Scotland are uh, different and unique from those in in, uh, other parts of the the Western world. Great. Well, um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Lawrence. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Duncan there, talking to Lawrence Grewer. That's everything for this week. We'll be back next Friday to investigate the link between mental illness bed provisions and involuntary admissions. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.